Yo, this is Rob Harvilla from 60 Saws That Explain the 90s, the world's greatest loopy and perverse and inaccurately named music nostalgia podcast. We're doing 90 songs now because there's too many songs. Pearl Jam, Jay-Z, Jewel, U2, Cher, Hootie. These are just some of the names people yell at me on the internet because we're back. More great songs, more rad special guests, more loopy perversity. Join us once more on 60 Songs That Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. trial by content it's the podcast where we force our favorite pop culture to compete in the coliseum of contentious opinion so we can all decide what wins each week your three humble hosts will debate a pop culture topic set the specific rules and rumble until a consensus is reached then with input from you the listener base we'll smash together our nominations with yours and determine a final four nominee poll that will enter trial by content and decide the true answer for all time welcome back i'm dave gonzalez I'm Joanna Robinson. <laughs> and I am Neil Miller. This week, Mr. Policeman, we left you all the clues <laughs> for this debate as we will be deciding who is cinema's greatest detective and we're not counting anything or anyone at or below Wayne Manor. Who is your favorite mystery solver? And is that person a detective by trade? Did they get their criminal in one installment or more? This and more on this week's Trial by Content. But first... We have results for the best motion capture performance for both Andy Circus and the not circus categories. Joanna, how did we do last week? Well, wow, real highs and lows for me, honestly, on these two polls. So <laughs> listen, let's get the, the circus out of the way first, right? Let's go to the circus, right? So we had four picks on this poll. This was just to sort of like don't we didn't want to have a circus only debate. And we also didn't want people to yell at us that we didn't have Andy Circus on our poll. So we just shunted him off to another uh, poll entirely. He got his own poll. He got his what own an poll. Honor. What an honor. We each sort of unofficially had a pick on here, but it wasn't uh, codified in any sort of way. But if it were, my pick, King Kong, came dead last, 2.3% of the vote. Dave's pick, Supreme Leader Snoke. Second to last, beating me by a mere 10 votes, honestly. It's a wash. Uh, Neil's unofficial pick, which is Caesar, the protagonist of Planet of the Apes franchise, 29.7% of the vote, but running away with it, it's the people's choice. Gollum, Smeagol, whatever you want to call him, 65.5% of the vote. Incredible, incredible showing. Unsurprising. Um, in our non-circus poll, Neil's pick of Terry Notary uh, in Nope. Uh, 10.6% of the vote, but I'm just wanting you to know Terry Notary is a legend and this is very disrespectful. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think of it like this. First of all, the Knights of Neil, very comfortable at 10% uh, of the poll, as we know. But also, this is this is a list of very talented performers. So, you know, uh, I don't I don't mind Terry Notary losing to the other three people on this list because they're all great. It is almost a complete tie between our listener uh, submission of Ashley Johnson in The Last of Us and Dave's submission of Zoe Saldana as Natiri in Avatar, the franchise. Um, mm -hmm. Both right around 20% of the vote. Um, but Josh Brolin as Thanos, inevitable, 49.4% of the vote. That's my pick. But I only really picked him because I felt like we would get really trashed if we didn't have him on the poll. And here he is. 
Yeah, that is correct. The, complete the numbers winner. say you're correct. <laughs> yeah, I genuinely was kind of surprised that he finished below 50%. That feels like a win for anyone who supported one of the other candidates. For a while, he was like at over, he was at Gollum levels, like over 60% of the vote. I was like, oh no, this is a Sure, and massacre. it's fine. He did a lot of work. He, he, he can win, but not by that much. I think more people were tempted by Neil and I's excellent plot description of Avatar, the uh, way of water to go go see Zoe Saldana as Natiri. Also, the a lot of guilt about how often Zoe Saldana has lost polls. I heard our, that you guys listeners. were responsible for the, the massive box office that Avatar 2 got this Obviously. weekend, right? Yeah, yeah. we did it. We the did Dave it. and Neil They're like, oh my God, I want to see the whales mm-hmm. and... It, uh, the movie delivers on that promise. The for masses sure. were just waiting for us to weigh in. Well, uh, I hope Jim Cameron is cutting you a check. All right. So this week we are talking about another auteur director, Ryan Johnson's uh, Glass Onion colon A Knives Out Mystery or Knives Out 2 if you prefer. Um, and we're talking about the whodunit genre as a whole. This movie, this episode's dropping on Thursday. This movie has already been in theaters, but it's not hit. It's like got one of those little tiny theatrical window Netflix releases. So it's hitting Netflix. A lot of people, I think, were waiting it for it to hit Netflix on Friday. So we're not going to spoil the whodunit of it all of, of Knives Out. We're just going to talk more generally about it and about whodunits in general. I'm a massive Agatha Christie fan. This is the main inspiration for Ryan Johnson uh, in this series. So I guess I want to I want to start I'll, I'll just say this walking out of my screen of glass onion um I was sitting next to a friend and then a stranger who had like made friends with before the movie started and she was really disappointed cuz she was like I figured out the like the answer really early on and I was like yeah that's I mean that's kind of true with the first knives out as well like I don't I don't know that it was that hard to figure out and so therefore I don't know that that's really the point. I don't know that you need to be like knocked off your feet and super surprised by the answer to the whodunit to enjoy the time you spend in a Knives Out mystery. So I guess my question, I'm going to start with Dave, like, do you think knowing the, like being surprised when the ending matters, maybe this feeds into your spoilers versus uh, not, uh, you know, philosophy? (laughs) What do you think? Uh, yeah, I don't think the surprise twist really matters. First of all, if it does matter, it, you only get it once. Uh, so uh, I do occasionally run across people who are very anti-spoiler for this reason. My opinion is if a movie doesn't work after you know what's actually happening in it, then it didn't work in the first place. Because I think um, surprise twists are sort of like jump scares. Uh, it doesn't take that much to make one work. Uh, but they could often be uh, detrimental to like the overall mood or plot or other other scares in your movie if we're keeping that analogy going. So I would say, how much does surprise twist matter? Not a lot. Um, I do think structure when it comes to uh, the Knives Out series it ends up being more important uh, than solution. I'm going to come back to you on that. Neil, what do you think? Does the twist matter? I mean, I think I agree. And, you know, the being the philosophy being it's it's more about the friends mm-hmm. we made along the way <laughs> than it is say. about the destination. But, no. you know, in mystery movies, and Ryan Johnson is a filmmaker who I feel like now that I've seen two two of his whodunits, I can say that he understands this pretty well, that it is about interesting characters and the time you spend with them and their relationships with each other and interrogating 
the themes you want to interrogate. It's not always about having a clever twist because as Dave said, there are plenty of movies with clever twists and that are otherwise terrible. <laughs> We're in a real like whodunit, um, you know, boom time. And we will talk about that um, a little bit more later. But um, I think, you know, something that's on a lot of people's mind in terms of that idea of like, does the does the answer to the mystery matter or does the hang with the characters matter more? White Lotus, I think, is on a lot of people's mind for that reason of like, does, you know, does the and that's not a whodunit in that. It's not, and no one in the show is investigating a murder because no one in the show is aware that like a death is going to happen on White Lotus. We all become the detectives at home, right? Like it's a whodunit for us, but that's not even like why Mike White makes that show. He makes that show to, you know, bump a lot of personalities up against each other and see and see what fun he can have with that. And so I think that even though that show isn't a whodunit, I think it, it, captures the essence of something that's really key for who done it which is like you just want to spend time with these people and watch them bounce off each other and also watch them bounce off each other in a circumstance where things feel like more and more heightened and that can be as the news tightens around um a killer as a detective closes in on on the case or in the case of White Lotus, it could just be like the strain of being extremely rich in paradise question mark I don't know <laughs> Sometimes the bill comes due, as they say. <laughs> it's true. Um, I was wondering, you, you, you know, Neil, you talked about we've 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 seen two Knives Out films now, and something I was listening to Ryan Johnson's um, interview that he did on Fresh Air this last week, and he was talking about, and this is true, a lot of people mistakenly think Agatha Christie writes from a cookie cutter formula that is deeply untrue. Like uh, she has some recurring. Plots, you know, that you'll read a mystery and you'll be like, okay, isn't this really just the death of Roger Ackroyd? Like, okay. But like she goes, she went through different cycles in her life. She's got her like main sleuth. She's got like intrepid amateur detectives that she does. And then she also like went through this weird, like it's the sixties. I'm interested in psychedelic uh, era mm -hmm. that she did and stuff like that. <laughs> um, that I think a lot of people don't know. And so Ryan was like, it's very important to me that each knives out mystery feel different from the other. And so I guess my question isn't necessarily like what's what's different between the two, but if we put these two together, knowing that Ryan is trying to do something different with each of them, what remains the same? And so then what makes a Knives Out mystery, I guess, sure. is the question. Neil, you seem eager to answer this one. This what do you got? is a fantastic question. And I think this is one of the things I like about the second movie, which is that there is connective tissue, right? Benoit Blanc is the character. We are still living in Benoit's world, sort of in his bubble, but it's not ultimately the same kind of Benoit Blanc story. Even he is thrown in to sort of a different part, uh, a, a different kind, a differently structured mystery. Um, but I do think that, that one of the things that is jumping out about the two Knives Out movies is Ryan Johnson's desire to interrogate wealth, yeah. right? Like that would be the thing that connects the two in my mind. The first Knives Out, I think I saw someone describe it as that was him interrogating old money. And then this one clearly uh, involves uh, the phrase, I wrote this down in my notes, NFTs for kids. <laughs> that <laughs> will tell you what kind of money Knives Out or Glass Onion and Knives Out mystery is, is interrogating. So I think, yeah, I mean, as long as he holds to some of those themes and continues to put Benoit Blanc in... Uh, it may not even need to have Benoit Blanc. He's just fun. 
again, to hang out with, right? Like if you're going to do a totally different mystery, isn't it fun to have him around? So I think those are really the two things, but it, it is that interrogation of the kind of wealth that makes you weird in a way that's hard to describe, <laughs> right? Like that makes you do things that if you were to describe them to people uh, in just casual conversation, they would completely just go, go glazed over because it's, it's that wild. And I think he has a really, uh, real knack for not only making that funny, but also giving those characters enough humanity that I am kind of rooting for some of them to get out of it in the end. But, you know, we'll see. See if they do. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I think money is a good place to center it around, even if it does seem like old money and new money is sort of a dichotomy in that way. But I also think it's like people that we would consider, uh, the, the we, the layperson would consider as maybe um, undeserving of uh, so much money. Uh, like, you know, you could do, I feel like you could do a knives out mystery in Hollywood very easily. I feel like you could do a knives out mystery in the sports world very easily, but just sort of this idea that, uh, by investing, investigating a certain type of wealth accumulation, you also learn that it's a spider web of different relationships, uh, people either supporting or backstabbing each other, which ultimately makes whatever mystery we're solving, uh, more contentious because it's uh, a mystery that's piled on top of other wrongs that I think if people are really invested in the whodunit aspect, see these all as red herrings, but really they're just excellent character development. So by the time we're having the mystery unraveled for us, it isn't that we didn't see it coming. It's that we now know more about the characters that we saw suffer some sort of wrong. I think by nature, I mean like um, by nature of... The idea of a gentleman detective, which is true of Poirot and true of Benoit Blanc, this this character archetype, you're you're going to be moving in the world of wealth and privilege, right? In the first place, to have a gentleman detective show up and consider your case, you're already in that world. Um, Agatha, not all of Agatha Christie's necessarily take place in a manner, but plenty do. Um, and I think some of the fun of an Agatha Christie or like the Lord Peter Whimsey stories, et cetera, like. There's the privilege class, and then there is all the people who underpin the privilege class. And that is something that, you know, the first time I was out of it was very invested in something my favorite whodunit film, Gosford Park, is very invested in the upstairs, downstairs um, nature of this world. And the way in which a murder plot is often an interrogation of power, either it's Someone in the underpinning class sort of taking whatever revenge they can on someone who has abused their wealth and power, or it is someone using their wealth and power as a cudgel. Like, um, you know, we're not going to spoil Knives Out too, but I feel like we can spoil the first Knives Out. Are you ready? We're going to spoil the first Knives Out. Like, Chris Evans' character, that's someone who's who's using his wealth and power as a cudgel. And and the kind of person who has gotten away with so much in his life that he feels like he can easily, he can get away with this. And the people that he is throwing under the bus as he does it are the members of the working class in this, in this particular narrative. And so Ryan Johnson on, on this Fresh Air interview was talking about this idea, especially the gentleman sleuth 
is someone who usually comes into a world that he doesn't quite understand. And we get that a lot, I think, in Knives Out 2, even more so than the first one, where Benoit Blanc shows up. He's smarter than everyone there, but also there's just, like, rules to this world that he's kind of trying to navigate because it's confusing and eccentric and terrible in its own way. Do you know what I mean? And so in that way, it's a outsider-insider examination of of wealth and class and privilege. Um, Neil, any thoughts or feelings about that? Yeah, no. And like I said, that's something I liked about Knives Out too. is that it takes this character who has a great deal of control in the first movie. And even though we're going into a situation where you know he's uniquely qualified to handle this, he doesn't quite have control on it, especially at first. And I think that, you know, that... That will be one of the interesting things to watch as Ryan Johnson makes more stories with Benoit Blanc is how does he challenge that character mm, and, yeah. in interesting ways. So uh, I think he's doing a good job so far. Yeah, um, I, there was, I guess I'm sort of going to admit that I got my mo- my Hollywood idea because I saw uh, Glass Onion and I was like, this really reminds me of another movie. And I thought I was so smart. Uh, that I remembered a movie I watched in college called The Last of Sheila. And then I went and I did my reading about The Knives Out. And Ryan Johnson, like, all over the place is like, oh, well, I like really like Last of Sheila and pulled a lot from that. But that's just like an idea of uh, people who are brought into a mystery thinking they're playing a game and how that sort of is exacerbated uh, and in a way that is entertaining but in that one of the people, one or more of the people when the game starts, know they're not in a game, if that makes some sort of sense. So I think uh, both uh, Knives Out mysteries are very rewatchable uh, to sort of go back to my twists don't matter thing uh, because of uh, what you can pick up uh, if you sort of start at the beginning uh, having the knowledge that you you have from having watched the movie already. The um yeah, like films like Gosford Park or Death on the Nile, like two like are two of my favorite movies that I have rewatched more than a lot of other movies. Not the Brana Death on the Nile, but the 1970s Death on the Nile. And um again, like knowing the ending does not rob you of the pleasure of watching these performances. And a lot of times with like there's a huge proliferation of whodunits. A lo- a big reason why is people chasing the surprise success of the first knives out right like oscar nominated made over 300 million at the box office original ip in a market where people think only superhero films and mission impossible films and fast and furious films or whatever can make money and now it's a franchise in its own right of course but like um so people are chasing that high we're again we're going to get into some of those examples in a second but another thing that i think is interesting um and and Ryan has talked about this a little bit, um, mainly around the first film, is like one of the reasons that Agatha Christie was so, so popular post-war is this idea of the comfort of the whodunit in that there's going to be something chaotic and violent and then it's going to be cozily solved in a drawing room by the end of the book or the film or the episode of your favorite procedural television show. And then the world will feel safe again. And that's such an interesting concept to me as we look at something in this post-COVID 
we're not exactly post-COVID, right? We're spiking again. But like this film brushes up against COVID right at the beginning of it, right? And um, it's not interacting directly with COVID necessarily, but it is acknowledging the existence of COVID. And I'm wondering if we're in another one of those cycles where we're like, I'm not equating COVID to World War II necessarily, but I think, you know, we're in a space where things feel out of control and things feel really chaotic to us. And we want the comfort of something like a Knives Out mystery where Benoit Blanc can put it all right by the end of the two hours. No, I I, I agree with that. I think that there is uh, definitely like a catharsis to just having something that is solvable by the end these days, right? Because it feels like so many of our societal problems. It's also, you know, when a filmmaker takes it and cleverly makes it about one of society's largest problems, like you know, income inequality and like wealth hoarding, it it brings that problem, at least for a few hours, to a place where we, the audience, feel like someone's at least solving a little bit of it. Like, you know, somebody, somebody is, the bill is coming due for someone. And I think these days it feels minorly cathartic to see that happen on screen. Maybe why the, the Branagh Death of the Nile didn't really perform uh, up to expectations is we've also moved in this, uh, you know, after COVID-19 era. Um, I don't know how much, I'll, I'll just speak for myself. My trust in the government and the police has gone way down. And those are traditionally people that we thought would provide the answers to great societal mysteries. Uh, so maybe the idea that there is a outside force who's smart enough to simply put it together in like a a very succinct way uh, is even more comforting now than it would have been after, say, like the structural American structural powers of post World War II. Bonus points for doing it with a charming accent. <laughs> yeah, Benoit Blanc's accent doesn't need to have any basis in reality. I'm completely no. fine with it. No, it's um, his accent. It yeah. exists in a category of its own. <laughs> Oh, speaking of Benoit Blanc, uh, he is not on our poll today. Um, Whoa, spo- it, there's the real spoiler. Despite the fact, okay, he's probably not on our poll today, <laughs> despite our affection for him. Um, I didn't write this prompt, but someone, one of my co-hosts did. Like, do we feel like this movie has moved Benoit Blanc closer to all-time legend, cinematic detective... Um, something that I love, something that I love that he's adopted, that Ryan Johnson has adopted from the Agatha Christie novels is oftentimes Hercule Poirot would have like a younger female character sort of like helping him with the, it's a very Doctor Who, like a companion essentially, like helping him with the mystery. And this is something that he's ported over into this. So it's not just like the lone genius detective. There's like usually a some sort of group effort going on here. Um, Dave. Is Benoit Blanc close to becoming a cinematic legend detective or is there something standing in his way? I think he's coming close to it. I mean, basically what he's layering on now is just uh, fantastic descriptions of, you know, the the hole within the hole. (laughs) Uh, But um, I think... Yeah, uh, he he needs some more layers, but in terms of like uh, the cases that he has cracked and the intricacies of them and how important he is to uh, the actual solving of the case, I think uh, Glass Onion takes him up a notch. And if he keeps heading in that upward direction, he's going to be one of the, the greater cinematic detectives. 
How much, Neil, how much did seeing him at, in his home life and learning a little bit about his home life do to, this is at the very beginning of the movie, so it is not a spoiler. How does, how does, I mean, I'm considering it not a spoiler. How, how, does, <laughs> how does that enhance our understanding of him as like a legendary cinematic detective? Well, I think what that shows me, at least, uh, the fact that we get a little bit more of his personal life, what it's like to be in his bathroom, uh, in his, <laughs> to be very specific, um, is that it It indicates to me that there is a greater uh, back, amount of backstory that exists in Ryan Johnson's head for Benoit Blanc that can that is being very patiently sort of doled out in these movies. So what I think the second one shows us uh, is that there is, you know, a, a path to sort of building out Benoit Blanc's wor- world and uh, that if he can pull if they continue to be funny and if we see some really hilarious familiar faces show up you know in many more movies on top of just the daniel craig of it all i think he he could uh, very much contend for this title someday but you know he's still in his early early run two movies maybe not enough not not even close to batman who's so good we'll we we're eliminating we'll him from the poll him. <laughs> in the title <laughs> As ever. But a great start. Uh, <laughs> um, we want to really quickly uh, just shout out journalism as a subsection of the whodunit. Uh, like your detective doesn't have to always be a detective, a private, a PI, a gumshoe, whatever. Like oftentimes journalists or just amateur randos who are plunged in the middle of something will will wind up being um, the detective. So we'll get into that a little bit more. But I love a journalism movie and I love when a journalism movie is also a whodunit. That's like sort of platonic ideal for me. Um, Ryan Johnson himself is chasing the whodunit trend with his own other project, which is Poker Face, the Natasha Leone uh, starring uh, Peacock show that he has that's debuting at the end of January 2023. But we want to just briefly touch on the fact that this is like, again, chasing that 300 million payday for Lionsgate for the first Knives Out film, this like little trend that we're seeing on film and television. Brana was already on his Agatha Christie bullshit, <laughs> you know, like when, when Ryan and Ryan, Ryan has said that he likes all whodunits. He's like, I like when Adam Sandler does it. I like with Kenneth Branagh done it. Like, whatever. Um, Search Party, of course, also predated um, Knives Out. But I think that, that that idea of ushering in the millennial whodunit is, is something interesting because that permeates something like Only Murders in the Building or the millennial obsession with the murder podcast, which is his own phenomenon that I don't know how to examine because I can't listen to murder podcasts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or After Party, the Apple TV Plus show. And and another, of course, another part of the whole whodunit idea is that you can get an incredible ensemble cast. That is like a a hallmark of the whodunit. Um, and we're going to talk about a few of those casts down in the in the polls today. Um, but sometimes, even with an incredible cast, you can go wrong. See also, see how they run and Amsterdam, two films that really wanted to be in the Knives Out like lane and really missed the mark for me. Do you guys have contrary opinions on either of those films that you want to share with me? No, no. Amsterdam, I, I think I didn't even 
tweet or speak a review into existence until now because I thought felt it was kind of like punching down on how bad the movie is, but like <laughs> it's astonishingly bad. Most <laughs> most wasted cast full of people that should have known better. Amsterdam this year, I think. See how they run also was like which is literally set backstage of the mousetrap, the Agatha Christie play. Like that's where the murder happens. Incredible cast led by Sir Sharon and Sam Rockwell. A uh, period piece, zippy, frothy, whodunit. I should have loved that movie. That movie, also terrible. So, like, there are people who are doing surface-level imitations. People as, like, well-known as David O. Russell. We don't have to talk about David O. Russell right now. But, like, and are missing the mark. And so there is a deeper level of understanding. This isn't just, like, a, a genre that you can easily copy and paste as long as you get the right actors, et cetera. You need to get – there's something deeper going on with the storytelling that uh, a lot of these folks are missing. And last but certainly not least, since we talked about the millennial whodunit, we also, of course, have to talk about the Gen Z whodunit, Bodies, 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 the 84 film that I actually really liked this year. How did you guys feel about Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? Yeah? I think it's great. Yeah. I mean – the mystery, I don't think, would be the reason no. I would primarily uh, get into it, but it definitely is. Uh, there ends up being an actual body, and uh, they're they're trapped in a house, presumably with the killer, and they have to, you know, untangle that using their knowledge and being very high on various substances because they're there for for a party. And similarly, you have an, an out, a couple outsiders to a world of privilege. And so you have interesting uh, examinations of class, et cetera. Yeah. Do all rich people have a gun? Watch Bodies, Bodies, Bodies <laughs> to find out. <laughs> all right. That's it for our sort of like Glass Onion uh, whodunit overview. Neil, what are we doing specifically today? Well, before we get into our uh, full debate for cinema's best non-Batman detective, we have to talk about the pointy-eared guy in our title and explain a little bit around why not only is Batman getting the category crown this week, but why is he banned from the poll? And I think this is fairly clear to folks who have listened to this podcast uh, over the last year that we've been doing it, that Batman is very overpowered when it comes to polling on the internet. And we have, of course, <laughs> retired him to the Trial by Content Hall of Fame, where he now lives quiet life. And is no longer defeating us. And also, I think it is it is hard to do this poll without taking the financial success, cultural cachet of just the size of what Batman is on screen at this point uh, into account. And uh, for that reason, he's our category crown, and he's in the title of the episode, and he is no, not eligible to be one of your choices. But is there anything else we want to say about Batman? Well, I want to ask Dave, or I mean, either of you, but maybe Dave, like, why is Batman called the world's greatest detective? Where is Where did that title come from? Do you know? Uh, well, I imagine because he's uh, appeared in detective comics and you got to, you know, loop those those people under a familiar heading. Uh, Batman originally was more of a vigilante than a superhero. Uh, I don't think cinema has really portrayed him in that way, uh, except maybe Matt Reeves is uh, the Batman. Uh, but the idea that Batman was able to see uh, the crime much more clearly than the police, uh, a la the shadow, he knows the secrets, and uh, was going to uh, avenge those himself. 
And so it did involve some detecting because Batman would have to figure out who was behind the thing that eventually became a much more superhero-ish mold with your big villains and whatnot uh, and everything becoming slightly more outsized. Uh, But Batman can still detect pretty well. It helps that in some versions, especially in the comic book, he has uh, technology that is impossible to actually exist. And then even, I think, uh, The Dark Knight, um, the sort of cell phone pinging thing where he's like, we're going to violate privacy just so I could catch the Joker here. That's a little bit of detecting, (laughs) but I don't think that's (laughs) actually being It's like detecting mixed with, you know, human rights violation, but it's fine. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) which... Like Batman used to not be as concerned with violating rights, but now in the technology age is doing that all the time. Sure. So, he still didn't he still didn't want to kill anybody though. So I think that's the the important bar that Batman cleared in that movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> nice. Uh I do like that the characters evolved to not use guns. That seems nice, especially if you're gonna overpower them in different ways. But also I feel like uh a lot of his detectiveness is often uh shunted for uh, like a big return, like the Joker's escaping from Arkham. Let's kick off another Joker arc. It's not even a question of who's behind it. Even uh, someone like the Riddler, uh, you're not wondering who's doing it. You're just wondering what the next step in the like puzzle is. And I think uh, Batman uh, recently is a much better puzzler than he is a detective. All time great puzzler. Thank you. All time great puzzler. <laughs> All right, well, then, you know, he can stay there in the Puzzler Hall of Fame, which means that we finally get to move on to what's actually happening in our poll. Uh, And your choice, of course, for cinema's best non-Batman detective must be a character who solves mysteries, usually crimes, often murders, in one or more cinematic adventures. Uh, Of course, each of your faithful hosts are going to present their picks, and then we will consider yours and form them all into our final poll. Uh, We, of course, have to eliminate some uh, additional ones beyond the overpowered Batman in our pre-trial dismissals. Uh, so here, here's a new thing that we're doing. This was something I call the toughest cut of the week, which is after we put together our picks and we've planned which listener picks we want, each of us has gone through and picked the one that is right there, the next name on the list. And I will go first to tell you who my toughest cut of the week was and this is this is a tough one, but I, I feel like if she got maybe a couple more movies, she would be way up there. But this is Clarice Starling from the film uh, The Silence of the Lambs. Do you feel like if she had been played by the same actress in all the movies that she's appeared in? It yeah, would be I mean, yeah, it is tough for any of the other Clarice Starlings to overtake. You know what Jodie Foster gave us in that movie, and I do think that if that character had gone on and been in more movies about chasing down Hannibal Lecter and people like Hannibal Lecter, that I think she would have that that amazing uh, you know franchise potential, but. You know, I think it's a gift to us that we got this one really amazing film in which Clarice is chasing down uh, murderers and working with Hannibal. But uh, I think that's probably the reason why she's my tough cut. Not enough work on the screen for Clarice Starling. Uh, Dave, would you like to eliminate uh, any uh, detectives? Oh, yeah, like (laughs) apparent favorites, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, here's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Sherlock Holmes is not good in any of the Sherlock Holmes movies. I've watched 
a lot of them, not all of them, because there are certain ones, I think, that are mostly lost to time or might exist in like a UCLA vault somewhere. Uh, but Sherlock Holmes, one of our oldest literary detectives, thanks to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, is real. that's really where he shines, uh, sort of in that format. Uh, so I think some TV shows have gotten close. I'm a big fan of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Sherlock was a fantastic romp. Uh, but in terms of his movies, Sherlock Holmes is very frequently not doing the greatest uh, solve. I think the most adapted uh, story is Hound of the Baskervilles, which is fine, except Sherlock Holmes is literally missing through a large chunk of it because he's off solving the mystery in a way that we don't see. <laughs> uh, and then the uh, like Basil Rathbone series, uh, I, I love his portrayal, but after uh, two movies made by 20th Century Fox on like an actual budget, they became universal B-movies and they moved him up in the timeline so he could fight Nazis. Uh, th those aren't great. They're like fun, but they're not uh, like a mystery that you will unravel. And then, of course, as I was talking to Neil about before we started recording, uh, the Robert Downey Jr. ones are fine, but they're action movies. So the detection is actually getting you to an action climax where uh, Watson and Holmes have to basically fisticuffs their way out of the mystery, uh, which is an interesting take, but I don't think makes him a fantastic detective in any of those. So although Sherlock Holmes, one of the greatest all-time detectives of fiction, I think, uh, not extremely well represented in movies, or at least uh, not as much as the people we ended up picking for our actual poll. Nice. Uh, Joanna, who would you like to eliminate as your toughest <laughs> cut of the week? I mean, you guys have like complete icons on here and I have a, like a slightly more obscure thing. But I just if I convince anyone to do anything coming out of this podcast, I really hope if you haven't seen or you haven't rewatched in a while to watch Gosford Park, which is not as far as I can tell streaming anywhere for free, but is easily rentable. Um, Gosford Park, I think, is one of the best movies of all time. And the sleuth sort of by accident sort of sleuth I mean Stephen Fry is the ostensible detective but he's so bumbling that that's just a punchline and the actual sleuth is uh, the character Mary McFeeshin I like totally fumbled that sorry um, but she says it very interestingly uh, played by the great Kelly McDonald a, a, a maid downstairs sort of visiting the manor for the first time uh, and she cracks the case and it's but really it's just about a hang with all these characters and no like with love and respect to Ryan Johnson um, and maybe another all-time classic comedy that's going to be brought up a little later I don't think any ensemble cast can match the Gosford Park ensemble cast if, especially if you're a fan of like you know sirs and dames <laughs> there's a lot of them in the cast so um, you know <laughs> that's just a, I just love that movie so much so alright yeah. so yeah all right, and then a couple of other ones from our wonderful listeners who emailed <laughs> in. Remember, you can always send your suggestions to trialbycontent at gmail.com. We have Charlie's Angels. I guess for this one, you could pick uh, either of the casts if you want Drew Barrymore, Lucy Liu, and uh, Cameron Diaz, or if you want the, the K-Stew version that came out more recently. Uh, we have Francis McDormand as Marge Gunderson from Fargo, working class hero. Marge Gunderson, who, uh, you know, one of the few uh, cops that I will, will root for. Uh, so she's great. Uh, we have Humphrey Bogart in multiple roles, first as Sam Spade in The Maltese Falcon, and then later, at, or, and then also as Philip Marlowe in The Big Sleep. 
We've we got a nomination for Jim Carrey as Ace Ventura Pet Detective, which yes, that is true. He is an iconic detective that we all remember. I will just remind you that that movie does not hold up as well as you might as folks might think it does. Uh, some of the humors, uh, not my fave from old Jim Carrey, but uh, I do remember Ace Ventura. And then of course another one that we'll never forget: William Somerset, played by Morgan Freeman in the movie Seven. That is an ending that will stay with us forever. Um, you went to the library. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was a little surprised we didn't see some, you know, like Jake Giddies uh, from Chinatown or Rick Deckard from Blade Runner or Dirty Brad Harry. Mars? Inspector Clouseau from the Pink Panther yeah. movies. So hey. there are a lot of fun ones that didn't quite rise to the, the level of being in the debate and they have all been dismissed, which means it's time to get into it. All right, that time it means it's time for the host debate. And once again, Joanna gets the privilege of going first. Uh, this time ushered in by Purple Josh Brolin on the hand of Thanos. <laughs> Go ahead, Joanna. Running the gauntlet. Um, yeah. So uh something that Neil said earlier today when we were trying to figure out like the exact rules of this debate, um, which is maybe something we could have shared with our listeners, was like, Neil decided that it doesn't have to be one portrayal of a character in order to make the poll. This was a vagary that we left open last week. So in which case I will nominate um Hercule Poirot himself, Agatha Christie's great sleuth. If you enjoy Branna. Great. That's fine for you. But I'm here to talk about two other actors who really crushed this role. Albert Finney in Murder on the Orient Express and Peter Ustinov in both Death on the Nile and um, Murder Under the Sun. I think it's called or Death Under the Sun, something like that. Um, that's a lesser film. Don't worry about it. Um, this is, I mean, this is just the iconic gentleman detective. I don't know what else to tell you. And the fact that he's Belgian means that both Peter Ustinov and Albert Finney are doing absolutely bonkers accents, which is <laughs> tremendous fun. There's also, of course, strong mustache work from everyone involved across the board. Um, the beauty of uh, Murder on the Orient Express and probably much more Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, which is my favorite. Again, incredible ensemble cast, but this isn't about, but Poirot as a ridiculous yet soulful and sympathetic figure is like one of the greatest fictional creations of all time. And unlike poor Sherlock Holmes actually has a couple good movies to back him up. Um, and I just, I think what Christie created here and what Ryan Johnson is copying with Benoit Blanc, which is again, someone who is like the, the Colonel Sanders accent, the various like things. And you're just like, what a ridiculous figure. But then there's just like something much deeper going on that they've, that this is a character who has seen a lot, who is worried for the innocent people who are caught up in this case. Um, and also has a deep, deep, keen understanding of, of human frailty. And I think those combinations of the silly and the profound is what make Poirot and Benoit Blanc and other characters like them uh, incredible. P.S. Shout out to our producer, Carlos, who would like to nominate Detective Obi-Wan from Attack of the Clones. I just wanted to work that in there. Detective Obi-Wan Kenobi himself uh, in the mix for Attack of the Clones. All right, I'm done. 
I mean, I would have appreciated that more if we ever saw Sipodius. Like, ever. <laughs> uh, what's up with that guy? Did Obi-Wan really find anyone? No, I just, just found a bunch of clones. Uh, all right, Neil, you're, you're up next in the, the percent. Oh, wait, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm up next in the percentage-wise. I, I know what I'm doing. Um, uh, we've been talking a lot about ensembles, and by we, I mean mostly Joanna, and I appreciate <laughs> that volley because I am going to pick Someone who uh, appears in one movie is not technically a detective, depending on which ending you consider canon. I'm talking about Wadsworth the Butler, played by Tim Curry in the movie version of Clue, which I'm going to spoil Clue if that's something you care about in terms of the whodunit. But because when it was released in 1985, uh, it went into theaters with uh, one of three different endings. Uh, not a great way, I think, to watch Clue is picking one of the three endings. Uh, but when it was released on home video, which is the way that you're going to see it now, we get to see all three endings, uh, which frequently cuts back to a fantastic, uh, I'm going to say, end of second act, entire third act performance by Tim Curry as Wadsworth who runs throughout the house and as quickly as possible covers every single thing about the evening that has resulted in so many murders. It's not just the first murder of Mr. Body, uh, but the subsequent murders of every other guest in the house who was not given a color-specific name. Uh, I do believe that in the final uh, ending, it is revealed that Wadsworth committed a murder and might have some motivation behind some of the other ones, which might make his detectiving a little uh, less excellent. But uh, in terms of uh, the whodunit genre, I love a good, and now the detective explains everything scene, and Wadsworth running around the mansion with everybody's uh, physical comedy trying to follow him is absolutely the best. I also appreciate the ending where he is not one of the murderers, uh, but is not great at counting bullets in a revolver. I think that's also an all-time classic, <laughs> uh, which is why you need to watch uh, the movie with all three endings. And I will say that even though it's easier to figure out the murdering if you committed a murder, uh, I'm still going to give him uh, the best cinematic detective because it's fun from top to bottom. And as I mentioned before, twist endings doesn't really matter. Uh, what matters is, as Neil would say, friends we make along the way. <laughs> and what a stacked group of friends my cast has. Uh, but yes, we're going to give it to Wadsworth instead. All right. Well, that brings us, of course, to my choice and the reason why we needed some vague rules this week, because mine is someone, <laughs> a character that has appeared in three different ways through the lens of three different performers. I am, of course, speaking of millennial icon, uh, goth, a goth private investigator with a photographic memory who fearlessly investigates some of the probably most fucked up crimes imaginable, I'm going to say, from Stieg Larsson's Millennium stories, his Millennium series. I'm talking about Lisbeth Salander who uh, I would say 
I personally have owned theoretical real estate on Numi Rapace Island for many years, <laughs> uh, since the first of the, the Swedish trilogy that she stars in. It's the only real estate I'll ever be able to afford to own in my life. And it was an amazing purchase because she brought Lisbeth out of Steve Larth, off of the page and uh, into our lives. Uh, I love any investigator or uh, millennial person a person of our general age group who not only has a superpower like a photographic memory, but also knows how to use the internet much better than literally everyone around her. And that is one of her great skills. <laughs> uh, the other thing we love about Elizabeth Salander is that, you know, she moves to the beat of her own drum. She has her, what I would like to call her own boundaries for justice. <laughs> She, she's not afraid to kick a hornet's nest, you yeah, might say. Which means that while she's investigating, uh, usually some of the, the most, like I said, very messed up crimes, a lot of times uh, in ways that are interrogating, you know, uh, large amounts of hoarded wealth and what that does to the brain of the people who have large amounts of wealth and power. Uh, she leaves room, not only for what you would think is a societally acceptable amount of revenge or payment upon someone who does bad things. But, you know, I think she leaves room for a lot of creativity. So if you are looking for uh, someone who's whip smart and (laughs) can solve any mystery with uh, an internet connection and will be very creative in how she makes people pay, I don't care if you're choosing the Numi Rapace version, the Rooney Mara version, or even the Claire Foy version. They're all Lisbeth, they're all wonderful, and they all deserve your vote. Oh my god, I just, I'm so late to the party realizing there are two Lisbeth Salanders and women talking. (laughs) 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 That's what they're talking about. (laughs) Justice. (laughs) I mean, not inaccurate. Uh, The Dragon Tattoo series and uh, Clarice Starling, Neil, are both picks from one of my favorite uh, genres of literature, which is fucked up serial killer meets meets his like match uh so i i really appreciate both of those choices i had great times with those books and those movie series um so that that's really tough for me and then of course puro uh like joanna was saying mustache aspiration king (laughs) Uh, (laughs) it really is hard to compete with the facial hair i listen my choice she obviously is a a noted dragon tattoo haver she has had a number of amazing hairstyles but i don't think any of them can compete with the mustache game i don't know that rooney mara like fashion mullet was pretty strong strong. was it the spiked mohawk one that she had in one of the posters it's amazing great stuff um i to 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 pile into Dave's nomination. I mean, obviously Clue is a classic and once you're done, like make it a double feature tonight. Watch Gosford Park and then Clue tonight, Thursday, and then tomorrow Chase It With Glass Onion. I think that's a great way to end your week to head into the holidays. A lot of murder. But, um... Yeah, so you can go home and be suspicious of literally everyone you meet at your family (laughs) gathering. But but Dave was talking about how Tim Curry runs around the manor to, you know, break down the murder. And I love that as a subversion of, like, everyone assemble in the drawing room and just sit there while the detective monologues. Um, That's one of my favorite parts about Clue. Love it. And it does, it adds that extra layer to it because there's a rewatch crew recently to come up with this, this pick. And there really is a like structure uh, where in the middle, 
we kind of don't have time to figure out who the murderer is. Uh, there's uh, more people being added. There's more secrets that need to be kept amongst the guests. Uh, it does sort of take a break for some out there comedy. And I love that we so hard come back to the murder, but specifically just through Tim Curry. <laughs> After that second squishy part is done, everybody else in the cast, their only job is to react. And one of the reactions we get is like the classic Madeline Kahn, like flames, flames. on the side of my face. <laughs> he so he really, so much. just uh. as a performer and a detective, uh, he allows uh, each person to sort of have their say and their fate in the end, which I really appreciate cinematically. I really tried to lean on the cinematic thing because there are so many detectives that are represented. I'm trying to think about like, Great job on both of you realizing Neil's uh, rule about multiple portrayals and multiple sequels <laughs> could open you up to beyond just one movie. I decided this obviously early. So it's like, man, no one's going to be able to beat Clue. But if it's a collection of works, I think you guys are pretty, pretty close. I'm just going to have to hope that uh, people who are listening to this podcast and voting have seen Clue. Sure. I think Clue Please. will do pretty well. Clue should do well. I Honestly, yeah. the, the one thing that as you guys are talking about your picks is working against my pick per se is it cuts against my general theory that it's about the friends that we meet along the way in the mystery because Elizabeth Salander is uh, fantastic at her job, great to watch, adds a lot of grit to this poll, which I love, but she's doing most of it on her own. Daniel However, Craig is also there. I was going to say, we do get a bonus <laughs> of not just any Daniel Craig, but a very sort of thirst-worthy Daniel Craig performance in that Fincher movie. So, uh, you know, Elizabeth, not a high quantity of friends, but the quality is there. <laughs> yeah, I'm also now concerned about mine because I don't really care about the characters outside of them existing in Clue. <laughs> like, Joanna was saying, you could have some warp for the actual suspects. Mine, mine doesn't. They're all kind of bad in their own sort of way. <laughs> uh, we just enjoy watching them because of their performances. So if that's... If if empathy from your detective is what you're looking for, uh, I might not have that in abundance. But Clue, I mean, like Clue, Ryan didn't invent, obviously, the like skewering class thing because that's very much on Clue's mind. Like, who who are the murder victims? It's the cook and the maid, you know what I mean? Like, they're the disposable people cook are the, the are the staff. So, like, poor Yvette. But, um... Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think that structure thing is really interesting too because that is something you mentioned you mentioned this pa in passing. And I forgot to come back to it, but in Knives Out, now that we've seen two of them, there's usually a retracing of the steps midway through the film in or usually in both cases there's a retracing of the steps. Okay, let's start over. So it's not even like watch it to the end and then rewatch it to figure out what was going on. You're sort of like in the middle taking a rewind. Okay, let's reset and figure out what's going on. And I think that's that's a little clue-ish in its own way. So Yeah, and mine doesn't even settle on what actually happens. You could rewatch it and see how all three are feasibly possible. Uh, I, yeah, I also want to... Mine isn't necessarily for my detective, but uh, I do want to shout out that, like, of uh, movies made about toys that shouldn't be good, uh, Clue. Amazing. Oh, versus Battleship? That, that, that versus like <laughs> yeah, cinematic sure. icon battleship, battleship. <laughs> even oh, like yes. the Lego movie that's technically about like toys and I just still appreciate it but nothing's better than sitting down to watch Clue and then getting like 40 minutes into it before Tim Curry's uh, screaming we have to know 
who killed him and where and with what. <laughs> and being like, oh, right, the game. Right, this is have I ever told you? Have, you get, have I ever told you guys a story about the time that I tried to play Clue uh, while California legally um, enjoying some herbal supplements? No, but I'm fascinated. Did you not make use of the... Of the checkmark sheet they give you? Okay, so here's the deal. I hadn't played Clue in a really long time. And my where I was over at a friend's house, we were all enjoying some California legal herbal supplements. And they had a box of Clue. And I was like, oh my God, I haven't played Clue in forever. Let's play Clue. And then we opened it and the instructions weren't in there. And I was like, no, the instructions were there. They were in Spanish. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, okay. I took Spanish in high school, question mark. I can speak past. Like, I will figure out the rules based on, and it did not occur to any of us to Google what are the rules of Clue. <laughs> like, mm. Not a single one of us. And so we just struggled along with my really rudimentary Spanish trying to figure out how to play Clue and definitely missed a key part of it at some point. But yeah. How did that game turn out? I had a great time, honestly. And then and then we just and then we watched Clue. We played that game and then we watched Clue. So it was great. Nice. Yeah. I honestly I think this is another point for my my pick, Elizabeth Salander, because every party needs some weirdo sitting in the corner who will just randomly be like, Google it. Uh, <laughs> You're right. If Elizabeth Salander had been there, we definitely would have been able to Google the rules yeah. of Clue. Hundred <laughs> percent. I do love it. Clue is a game that is uh, best played with li- large groups of people like that. Uh, I, I think like a couple of years ago, because my partner isn't that much in the games, I just downloaded like the iOS version and played against computers until I realized that was like a bad way to play it. Someone play Clue with me sure. after you Dave. vote for me in this week's poll. <laughs> Next time I'm in your state, we'll play Clue, okay? Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, I'm available I, I, to play Clue anytime, bud. Also, feel sorry for me and vote for me. That was also why I was going to do All right. So we have Piero, Elizabeth Salander, and Wadsworth from Clue. That means it's time to figure out who our fourth is going to be. We have each picked one of your submissions this week, and we're going to have to narrow these three. Well, there's actually four of them. We're going to have to narrow these four down to one pick. Uh, Joanna, why don't you go first? Uh, my pick comes from our listener, Emma, who says, I would like to submit for cinema's best non-Batman detective, Nick and Nora Charles from The Thin Man, 1934. But actually, it's a whole franchise. As played by William Powell and Myrna Loy. I know this is a throwback, but this movie completely holds up. It manages to pull off both hard-boiled gruesome noir and slapstick bantery comedy. Nick and Nora are a newly married couple trying to enjoy the holidays back in New York where Nick was a hotshot police detective. He retires after marrying the uber-wealthy Nora, or tries to, but one step back in the city and he's recruited to help solve the mysterious disappearance of a mad scientist. Nora is all for the adventure and despite being woefully inexperienced in detection, she does everything she can to aid in the investigation. They succeed in solving the crime, but it's their partnership that really puts this above the rest. Even though they are constantly ribbing each other, it's clear that they are deeply in love and invested in the interests of their partner. They outdrink, outparty, outwit, and outdress their adversaries to solve the case, which is revealed in a classic dinner party lock-in with every suspect at the table. All to say, no one else could make solving a murder mystery so fun to watch, even after 88 years, or look so damn stylish doing it. Um, so that's from Emma. I, Joanna, just want to, yes, I mean, Nick and Nora Charles, icons of cinema. Uh, and the, like, the Thin Man, 
as a series, a series of films, your mileage may vary, but that first one, like, and again, <laughs> it's like, it's so wild to watch how much they're drinking and how often they're drunk. And yeah. they're just like the complete heroes of this film and very good at their jobs at the end of the day. So um, it's a real, it's a real joy. I love Nicodora Charles. So great pick. I'm sad I didn't see The Thin Man before I saw all the James Bond movies because otherwise I would have thought they were like the absolute coolest growing up. I would have been like, yeah, that's how you solve a mystery being drunk. Unlike, you know, the rest of uh, Sean Connery Bonds where he's <laughs> getting drunk and solving mysteries. Accosting women, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, don't like that. But yeah, Nick and Nora, that's, love that. Uh, I, I will go next. My submission comes from Cassie, who wrote, here's the thing. When you said you were doing detectives, I had a half mind to send over Pikachu. <laughs> Interesting. It would have been inspired. Yeah. It would have been inspired. However, that would have been a joke. What is not a joke is Eddie Valiant from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Bob Hoskins, rest in peace, does an amazing job playing basically an alcoholic, depressed, angry detective opposite of a literal cartoon. The stylized acting that he achieved was excellent. All of the human characters are going for a dark, broad, stylized genre, and I believe him in the role. When he prepares himself for going into Toontown and decides to dump out his booze on the street, it's honestly such a touching moment. And his whole musical number at the end that he does to kill the weasels is just next level after the grumpy performance he gave. I don't know how the actors kept the straight face through that movie. It's just so ridiculous. But Eddie goes where he is most vulnerable to figure out who framed Roger Rabbit. And in the end, he is a better man for it. Cassie, I love that you talk through the arc because it is a very silly movie, but it does have that distinct arc for Eddie Valiant, who's, you know, brother was killed by a tune and he needs to 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 figure out the way he relates to that society uh i think this one uh sidesteps until the very end uh the monetary nefariousness that we were talking about uh because it sort of hoodwinks you uh with tunes as a lower class that you have to be revealed as a lower class as the movie goes on but if you're going to pick a single movie Eddie Valiant from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, great detective, definitely gets his tune. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then I guess that means it's mine. I'm also, uh, I've also chosen one that has nominated a fairly colorful character from our <laughs> cinema history, and that is a submission from RJ, who says, no matter what show or movie you find her in, Velma is the greatest detective in <laughs> cinema. Not only does she always figure out the mystery, but she has literally the greatest support system ever to help her. Master Trap Builder, Fred Jones, Daphne, her ride or die, and of course, Scooby and Shaggy, who knowingly or not always help catch the crook. Together, they are truly unstoppable. Velma doesn't let things like high school, cops, or the munchies stop her from taking down <laughs> greedy old guy after greedy old guy, and she does it all while rocking a miniskirt. It's no mystery. Vote for Velma. I love this one. Thank you, RJ. Velma, uh, in my mind, uh, Linda Cardellini. Yeah, it's got to be Linda Cardellini. The, the cinematic mm, Velma. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think Velma is the most important person in her crew, right? I have to say, I love the rise of Velma. I don't know if Velma was such a hit, like when Scooby-Doo originally sure, came out, but I feel like the last days. like 
20 years or so, Velma has become maybe thanks in part to Linda Cardellini, like this sex symbol and like, you know, the cool, the clearly coolest member of the group, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Hashtag rise of Velma. Love it. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, you know, partially the rise of nerds in culture, right? Nerd culture and nerds becoming cool. Not, not, uh, you know, the, the ascot wearing Freds or the traditionally tall, beautiful Daphne's of the world, but give us, give us more Velma. Uh, Fuck your ascot. <laughs> <laughs> She's great. I will say if you're a skinny stoner teenager who likes dressing up as recognizable people for Halloween, you could get one green shirt, tan pants combo <laughs> and be both Trent. shaggy uh, and Trent from Daria. And uh, I've you know, seen just your go Trent costume. Once. It really is just a shaggy costume with the right facial hair. This reminds me of maybe the funniest thing that ever happened in my childhood uh, with my father. We were at a hockey game. I think it was like a like a minor league hockey game, whatever team Cleveland had at the time. And they were doing one of those show people in the crowd who look like a character. And they would put the character up there first and then show the person. They put Shaggy up there uh, from Scooby-Doo. And I went, oh my God, that looks like my dad. And two seconds later, he was right there next to Shaggy (laughs) on the Jumbotron. (laughs) So if you've ever wondered (laughs) what what my father looked like when I was a kid, it is Shaggy from (laughs) Scooby-Doo. I love our personal connections to this choice. Uh, all right, what 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 do we feel we are going to use to narrow down these these particulars? I don't know how to do it, man. Honestly, this is a tough one, and I really can't believe we don't have Sherlock Holmes on the bullet. It's <laughs> <laughs> nice, everyone. We could we could break out a just Sherlock poll and put all the dumb ones on there, but I don't think that's necessary. We don't need to treat him like Andy Serkis. He hasn't earned that. He's no Batman. Sherlock Holmes, you, sir, are no Andy Serkis. You're no Andy Serkis. Remember that. Please tell Andy Serkis I said that. Um, uh, Yeah, okay, so here's... I feel like uh, Eddie Valiant is a good choice as a detective. As I was saying, love the arc that he has. Uh, but I also think it's kind of cheating because his ensemble are some of the most beloved animated characters uh, like ever. So it's even if he didn't, well, and I'm going to include Christopher Lloyd as one of those people <laughs> uh, because it was fun watching Doc Brown uh, go bad for this when I first saw it. Um, I'm going to say Eddie Valiant, great detective, but he's ultimately in a sort of like parody of a noir thriller uh, that's going to lead him by his nose to the answer. I'm just, I don't like this argument now that I'm making it, but <laughs> I do think uh, Eddie Val- having Eddie Valiant on the poll also uh, cuts into my Wadsworth. So I'm going to uh, take two amazing physical performances by two fantastic actors and uh, say vote for mine. I think you're right that the Who Frame Roger Rabbit clue Venn diagram has significant overlap. You're smart. Um, I'd be happy with either Velma or Nick and Nora Charles. Uh, Nick and Nora Charles might give us some timeline spread. Um, yeah, I feel like the only thing working against Velma, despite the fact that she is an iconic character, is that this, and with no disrespect to Linda Cardellini, 
most of Velma's best work might be in the cartoon, which is a TV show. And it, it, it's not that that's her only good work. It's just that, uh, you know, when you think about Velma in your head, what do you think of first? Do you think of the live action version or do you think about the cartoon version? And I think in most people's minds, it's probably the cartoon version, but you know, I still think Velma would do okay. I, it's funny. Cause I think if we put Eddie Valiant in here, he's probably, he might be the one that just takes it away from all of our other candidates. Like it's, it's the least dorky answer. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> it might be. Wadsworth from Clue is kind of undorky. That's, that's true. That's and true. Velma has like the cool, the the cool rise of Velma factor. You know, I think you could put Velma in there if you wanted to. Nick and Nora Charles is a pretty dorky pick, and I'm not sure how well Nick and Nora Charles are going to do uh, with the Ringer listenership. But it does, however, honor the fact that this is not like a new trend in Hollywood storytelling. That this is something that they've been doing history. since since they got into talkies. Uh, they've been talking to each other about solving mysteries. <laughs> um, yeah, so we are. I'm like really, really uh, agnostic on the poll this week. <laughs> I mean, are, are we looking? Are we looking for somebody to give us a good run, or are we looking for somebody to elevate our our choices? Because I guarantee you, if we put Velma up there, people who have not listened to this podcast are going to be like, "Oh yeah, I know Velma. She's hot." Yeah. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> and then if we put Nick and Nora Charles from The Thin Man, people who have seen The Thin Man are going to be like, oh, yeah, obviously they're the choice. But then we're just get guessing on who's going to see The Thin Man. Our producer, Carlos, says Velma wins. No, no, no question. If she's on the poll. I think I agree. So the question is, again, here's the real question. Here's the whodunit of this section of the podcast. <laughs> do we want to lose for sure? Or do we want to probably lose? I'm going to... I say let's throw Nick and Nora Charles All right, on let's there. Try, we get, let's try We gave a whole Andy Circus <laughs> poll, and you guys don't understand how good of an effect Snoke is. So <laughs> let's try to foolproof Dave's this a like, little you bit. you ingrates. You don't understand the genius of Snoke. No Velma for you. All right. That is the most Andy Circus of the Andy Circus performances. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen. If this if if this metric makes us feel any better about this decision, I would say that Nick and Nora Charles, despite the fact that maybe not all of those are bangers, their cinematic legacy is far more expansive than that of Velma. Carl says, "Put Detective Pikachu on the on the poll." We, we can't. Nobody wrote in. <laughs> but uh, even, even though Cassie almost did, uh, that would have been that would have been hilarious. Mm-hmm. I would have loved Detective uh, Pikachu on the poll, to be honest with you. I actually don't remember how much that's an actual solving and how much it's just a reveal. Well, and it's also end. more of like our gang of friends solves mysteries. Pikachu. I think it's Psyduck is the real uh, detective. <laughs> Psyduck's the real detective. Yeah, Pikachu can't even Love take it. credit for for the whole thing. Let's so. do. Listen, it's the holidays. Thin Man has a loose holiday connection to it. Let's just do Nick and Nora Charles. Pour yourself a cold martini. Lovingly slap your spouse because it's okay to do that in the 1930s and vote for Nick and Nora Charles. <laughs> I love this for us because it means our poll is Pierrot, Lizbeth Souther. <laughs> sorry, I just can't let the way you pronounce Poirot stand. Poirot, Pierrot, Pierrot, Hercules, Poirot. There we go. That's the best way. Okay. Poirot. 
Elizabeth Salander, Wadsworth from Clue, and Nick and Nora Charles from The Thin Man. You could find our poll for cinema's best non-Batman detective on TheRinger.com, on @ringer on Twitter, and in the Spotify app where you find trial by content. You choose the winner, and we will announce it next week. Guess what, guys? You don't have to write in this week because it will be too late. But we will be back next week with another trial by content episode. Neil, what are we talking about? Well, we're going to be talking about both our picks and yours for the worst thing we watched in 2022 on a screen. Uh, and as Dave mentioned, your your submissions already need to be in before this podcast drops. So please have a relaxing weekend and enjoy <laughs> next week's pod. And then we have some fun plans uh, for our first show back 23, but I think we're going to wait to talk about that until uh, we get to next week. So, you know, something else to show up for next week. <laughs> the plans for the future. <laughs> I'm pronouncing it like Ross Perot, the presidential candidate. That's what my problem is. It kind is. of sounds like you're saying it like Peugeot, like the car. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Well, if anything we've learned on this podcast, doing it for a year, it's that Dave can't pronounce things. So you got you to gotta give him Dave, some space. Dave on has that. other uh, qu- fine qualities. <laughs> yes. Uh, mostly just being grumpy and uh, having very, very hard line opinions uh, and refusing to pronounce things correctly. Uh, this episode is produced by Carlos Cherubon.